So basically, it felt like I was going into a party and imagine like a room full of people. And at that point, I had about 400 followers. And so at the very least, I go into a party. I would imagine that at least I would recognize one or two people in that large room, new environment that I could kind of like bounce ideas off of or just meet other people through that person. But I walk into this room at a party and I know no one. It's all filled with strangers. I don't know anybody. That's how I felt when I first started posting on Twitter, where I'm sharing all these vulnerable things about me, all these stories, but no one cared. And people, it's like a weird thing, Joe, but like I could feel people like looking at these posts and like almost like judging me. Who is this guy? Like who invited him to the party? And so it took me a long time where I had to go up to each person using this party analogy, introduce myself, build a rapport, build a relationship. Imagine running a high seven-figure business with over 300,000 followers on social media, then launching a podcast. How many downloads would you expect? 100,000? 150,000? What about 10? We've all been there. We spend a ton of time pouring blood, sweat, and tears into a project just to have it launch to crickets. That's exactly what happened to Yang Su Chung with his podcast. Despite the social following, no one cared about his podcast. But instead of wallowing in self-pity or shutting the show down, Yang Su took action. He reactivated his Twitter account, which had been dormant for 12 years, and started basically from scratch, growing to over 20,000 followers in less than a year. Now he has a great process for getting people from Twitter to his newsletter to his podcast. We'll cover his entire journey and more. And in the pro show, we'll exchange notes on our production processes. Now, as an homage to Yang Su's show, instead of top takeaways, I want you to look for these life lessons. Life lesson number one, have a clearly defined niche and know how to reach people in that niche. You'll find that that was Yang Su's initial problem. Life lesson number two, share personal stories. We all try to hack the social media algorithms and copy what the biggest influencers are doing. But Yang Su says that's not the right approach. And life lesson number three, continuously hone your target audience and make sure to grow your show to serve them and yourself. This was such a fantastic interview. I love talking to Yang Su anytime I get the chance to. I think you're going to enjoy it as well. And if you want to get this episode and every episode ad-free and extended, you can join the membership over at howibuilt.it slash join. Like I said in the pro show, we're going to exchange notes on our production processes because I'm going on Yang Su's show and he has come on mine. But for now, let's get to the intro and then the interview. Hey, everybody, and welcome to How I Built It, the podcast that helps busy solopreneurs and creators grow their business without spending too much time on it. I'm your host, Joe Casabona, and each week I bring you interviews and case studies on how to build a better business through smarter processes, time management, and effective content creation. It's like getting free coaching calls 
from successful solopreneurs. By the end of each episode, you'll have one to three takeaways you can implement today to stop spending time in your business and more time on your business or with your friends, your family, reading, or however you choose to spend your free time. All right, I am here with Yang Su Chung. He is a serial entrepreneur and creator of First Class Founders, and I would consider him at this point a friend. Yang Su, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Joe. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I had a great time on your show. We probably should have talked about this in the pre-show, but I don't know when our episodes are coming out relative to each other. This episode's coming out before mine hits yours. So I'll just link to your show in the show notes. And then people can subscribe so that they can hear my episode in your podcast. Your episode is going to be really good. And so for your listeners, definitely don't miss out on that one. I don't know if this made it in. So I'm just going to say something I did was I enjoyed screamy music like Screamo and Slipknot. And I told Yangsu and his producer that I did a rendition of that in a high school play. And so they wanted to hear that. So I did it. It got recorded. I don't know if it'll make it into the show. I guess you'll have to listen. But if you want to hear my best best (laughs) Slipknot impression, if you want to hear that. And there you go. That's how you grow a podcast. So end of this episode. Yangsu, what I love and what I want to talk about with you is you've really built, I think, what is a really good Twitter following. I've been on Twitter since April Fool's Day, 2007. I'll never forget it because I'm like, well, I'm the fool here. I'm like a Twitter pessimist where I feel like you're like a social media optimist. And I think it shows because I've got like almost 6,000 followers as we record this. I didn't check right before we started recording, but you have a lot more than that. I think it was 18,000 the last time I checked, maybe. We're going to hit 21K probably today. Wow. Okay. So like quite the following and you correct me if I'm wrong. You were not really doing Twitter before 2022. I was not. I think I joined around the same time you did, Joe. I mean, we must have been one of the first few users on there. Yeah, because they launched in 2006, probably like in San Francisco, because that's where all social media starts, basically. Or like a Harvard dorm room, I guess. But it didn't really enter the cultural zeitgeist until Oprah mentioned it in like 2009 or 2010. I was on there and I was... Pretty early, but I didn't really understand it. And I just thought it was pointless. And so I kind of disappeared for a while. And so I pretty much took, what, a 10-year, actually more than 10 years, like maybe 12-year hiatus, where I just got off the platform. I didn't see a point in it. There's a point in my journey where I just didn't really like social media. I didn't really see the point of it. And I wasn't really into publicly sharing what I was doing all the time. And so I got off of it. And then when I launched the podcast... First Class Founders in November, that's when I realized, hey, like I need to get more public about what I'm doing here or else my audience will just be nothing, right? So that's kind of when I decided to get back on. Okay, before you launch your podcast though, like you have multiple million dollar businesses, right? Yeah, one holding company with three businesses. And so I launched my first business in 2015, it's an e-commerce site selling flashlights, pry bars, pocket knives. That's been growing really steadily. And then in 2018, brought home a French bulldog named Humphrey. This is right around the time when Instagram was promoting videos. 
a few of his videos. Actually, what's funny is the videos where I'm holding him and cradling him like a baby, those really took off like into the million views, right? <laughs> wow. And so he gained a following really fast. It surprised me and we weren't planning on that, but it just happened. And so my wife and I were like, all right, people are asking us like, hey, what's that leash? What's the harness you have? So we decided, hey, we have an e-commerce brand already with Urban EDC, my first company. Why don't we just do the same thing, but for French Bulldog owners? And so my wife launched Spotted by Humphrey, which is an online boutique for mostly French Bulldog owners. We launched that. And then fulfillment, or I guess in e-commerce, you have to like actually pack the item and ship it to the customer, right? That is one of the notoriously difficult parts of e-commerce. We were getting a lot of feedback from people like, hey, who's doing your fulfillment? Because my fulfillment is horrendous. And I have some horror stories myself where a customer would email me and say, hey, is this a joke? Like you ship me an empty box. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so it turns out that the fulfillment partner that I was using had taken the item out. And these are like expensive collectible items. It's like a $1,000 custom pocket knife, for example. And they shipped my customer an empty box. And the way I found out about it was the customer angrily emailing me being like, what is this deal, right? So, so like fulfillment is a huge pain point. And so we decided to launch GrowthJet, which is a e-commerce 3PL. And so that was in 2019. And so those three businesses collectively were doing probably six, seven million this year in annual revenue. So approaching the eight-figure mark, which is kind of like my goal. And so those three businesses, going back to this original question, I thought people have seen me grow as an entrepreneur, especially like the Urban EDC, my first business. You know, we had 170,000 followers on Instagram. We have a huge emailing list, approaching 100K subscribers on the emailing list. We have my French Bulldog, Humphrey. His following is very loyal. I mean, my wife does an amazing job with the content and she's basically co-creates the content with Humphrey. And... I just thought, hey, you know what? I can launch a podcast here and I'm launching to an audience because I already have the first business I started and then I have the Humphrey account. And so those two audiences should allow me to at least start with a baseline audience, right? It was so funny because I launched it and I was so optimistic and then it just fell flat. Like no one cared. So let's establish the baseline here, right? Your EDC following cared about EDC. Everyday carry for those who don't know. And I love that. I love pocket knives and pens and all that fun stuff. Actually, there's a knife brand that like escapes me. The name escapes me right now, but it was so light. It was like a $250 knife. It was so light. It fell out of my pocket and I lost it. And I'm so sad about it. Oh no. I'll think of the name before the end of the show. So anyway, it's an EDC brand. And then the followers of your dog, Humphrey, that's dog content. I have a really hard time leveling with that because I'm not like an animal guy. I'm really sorry to everybody who's an animal person. (laughs) And then your podcast is not about EDC, nor is it about dog stuff, right? It's about founder origin stories and takeaways from people starting businesses, right? That's right. So podcast is about, I do a solo episode and a guest episode. And the solo episode is mostly me explaining some concepts from my own journey as an entrepreneur. And then the guest episodes are hearing from others about their founder origin story and the lessons they've learned growing, whatever they're growing. Your thought here, right? Which is a valid thought. I would also have this thought. Is there are people who are following your other businesses who are probably interested in the kind of stuff that you're doing and how other people are launching businesses, right? But that wasn't really the case. EDC people only care about EDC. 
the dog people only care about dog stuff. Yeah, it was a shock. In the style of Andrew Warner, who I know you had on your show. I'll just ask you, right? Like how many downloads were you getting in those first few episodes? I was probably getting between 10 to 20 downloads an episode. Wow. And you had like six figure followings on multiple accounts. Yeah. So Urban EDC has 170,000 followers on Instagram, 100,000 newsletter subscribers. The dog account, Humphrey has 150K followers across Instagram and TikTok. And Humphrey's fan base is very loyal. It's really engaged audience. I thought at least 1% would be a good base minimum. But I mean, it was just shocking to me when no one cares. Basically, the audience is for Humphrey. is following Humphrey for his content, his funny and cute stuff. And then EDC is obviously like, they want to see the gear. So they don't care about building businesses, right? And so that's kind of the biggest mistake, honestly, that I made. Yeah, it sounds like if you had launched an EDC podcast, right? You would have gotten a bunch of EDC listeners. And if you launched like a Day in the Life of Humphrey podcast, you would have gotten listeners. Exactly. So that's really interesting. I think there's, again, in the style of first class founders, life lesson number one, have a clearly defined niche and know how to reach the people in that niche. Big followings don't necessarily mean a lot of downloads for your podcast. Exactly. I did that right, right? That was life lesson. I know you switched it up for Andrew. Life question was what you did for Andrew. (laughs) Okay, we all know the feeling of... I'm going to say we all know the feeling of like launching to crickets, right? I remember I launched my first course. It was a text-based course on how to launch a blog with WordPress. And I put hours into writing those words. I remember doing it in like Disneyland and then various coffee shops around my hometown. And I was like, this is going to be great. And two people bought it. And I was like, why is this? I had a big following in the WordPress community but they were developers. Developers already know how to launch a blog. So they didn't need that course. Their clients didn't need that course. I guess, what was the initial feeling like? And then when did you resolve to like take next steps to fix the problem? So basically, it felt like I was going into a party and imagine like a room full of people. And at that point, I had about 400 followers. And so at the very least, I go into a party I would imagine that at least I would recognize one or two people in that large room, new environment that I could kind of like bounce ideas off of or just meet other people through that person. But I walk into this room at a party and I know no one. It's all filled with strangers. I don't know anybody. That's how I felt when I first started posting on Twitter where I'm sharing all these vulnerable things about me all these stories, but no one cared. And people, it's like a weird thing, Joe, but like I could feel people like looking at these posts and like almost like judging me. Who is this guy? Like who invited him to the party? And so it took me a long time where I had to go up to each person using this party analogy, introduce myself, build a rapport, build a relationship, and then get introductions from that person. Or I go to a different person and say, hey, how are you? Like my name is Young Su. This is how I feel today. I also have a podcast. It's like building those individual relationships over time that compounds. Like you may not realize that that compounds, but like each little relationship you build one-on-one, that will add to your kind of baseline level of like, all right, we know who this guy is. And so the party room, by the way, is getting bigger and bigger. And you're now, you have a reputation. So like someone might be like, hey, Young Sue, like come meet my friend over here. You guys should talk. 
And so all of a sudden, you get pulled into like these other conversations. So that's kind of the analogy that I like to use is it's kind of like when you meet someone and you connect with someone, then you get pulled into other rooms and then you start talking there. And then someone else is like, oh, I know another guy who's also doing something really cool. You should meet him. And so it's kind of like you have these like different, you're a computer guy. It's like almost like different nodes, right? So like you got these nodes and like you're kind of planting yourself in these nodes and you're growing your network. That approach has really transformed my online presence, I guess. I love that. I want to dive into that. But first, we need to take a break for our sponsors. I've been working on a new website for my LLC, Good House Media, and decided to give Hostinger a try. They've sponsored before and at three bucks a month, it's kind of a no-brainer. So it was a bit of serendipity when they reached out to sponsor again. I mean, they're one of the hosting companies I tend to recommend anyway. Now, I've been creating websites for years, but for this, I wanted something that was as easy as possible, and Hostinger did not disappoint. They recently launched an AI website builder, which I played around with, and it's wild. You answer three questions, and it generates a full website with copy and images in like 30 seconds. Then you can customize it with their drag-and-drop tools. And they have something similar for WordPress, which, as you probably know, I love. But probably the best part is how much you get that most hosting companies charge you extra for. At just three bucks a month, you get unlimited bandwidth, a free domain, and a hundred websites, which is probably more than I'll need. Probably. If you're interested, you can head over to hostinger.com build to get an extra 10% off, plus two months free with the promo code build. Plus there's a 30 day money back guarantee. Again, that link is hostinger.com slash build and code build for 10% off and two months free. Look, you're listening to this show because you're a creator or solopreneur and you need to grow your business. That goes hand in hand with building your authority. And there are few things that build your authority faster than being a published author. As a five times published author, I know. You're likely already creating content to help you achieve this goal. Writing blog posts, creating videos, maybe even hosting a podcast. A book is the best way to get your content off the airwaves and into the hands of your fans. It's also a great way to diversify your revenue streams. But as someone who self-published and distributed one of my own books, I can tell you it's a huge pain. That's where Lulu comes in. Instead of having to figure out how to print, sell, and ship your book by yourself, let Lulu help. Lulu's e-commerce plugins allow you to sell books directly to your fans from your site while they handle all of the printing and shipping. You keep creative control, customer data, and 100% of your profits. Create a free account today at lulu.com. And thanks so much to Lulu for sponsoring this show. Hey there, I want to tell you about Sensei. Sensei is the original solution for creating and selling online courses with WordPress, and it's back and better than ever. As a course creator with Sensei, you get complete ownership over your content and the freedom to customize as much as you need. 
Sensei has vastly improved the course creation experience, adding a customizable distraction-free mode, video and lesson progression, powerful reporting, and a full set of interactive content blocks. And those blocks, like flashcards, image hotspots, and interactive videos, can be added to any page or post, not just the courses. The goal of Sensei is to make it effortless for course creators to develop personalized instruction for learners. And while Sensei is free to start, you can save 20% on Sensei Pro, allowing you to charge for courses, drip out content, manage groups and cohorts, and leverage new AI tools. Just go to howibuilt.it slash sensei to have the discount automatically applied. That's howibuilt.it slash S-E-N-S-E-I. All right, we're back. You're at this party. I love this analogy. I love what you're saying about building relationships because I think that the approach for a lot of people is I'm building a Twitter following at a macro level. I want to appeal to as many people as possible because Twitter has millions and millions of followers. But your approach is really different and it's really worked for you. I think it's really important to realize that it's a two-way street. The way I like to see it is like, it's not a broadcast platform. It's not like you're standing on a soapbox broadcasting with a loudspeaker like, hey, this is what I did this week or here are my wins. That approach won't work, especially at the beginning. The approach that works is getting on the ground floor, meeting people, hearing about their problems, their pain points, connecting with them, adding a little bit of value to that conversation. And then now you've had this rapport with that one person. And then you kind of repeat that process. And it's very difficult in the beginning because you don't know anybody and no one really cares about you. And you're putting in all this work and you feel like you're doing it for nothing. And so the hardest part is always at the beginning. But one by one, relationships build and then you support their work too. So what's great is when you meet these people at this party, they may also be kind of a smaller following, smaller account. But then you start engaging with each other and you kind of grow together. And then at some point, they're also like a larger group and they have more authority and clout. And so it's kind of like this flywheel where you're like growing together. And imagine you do this with a bunch of people. And when that happens, like everyone lives together. A lot of bigger accounts today, what I've heard is that they also started really small, but then they had like a peer group accountability that kind of lifted all the boats together. And I think that's like really key is like finding accountability partners or this like peer group of friends who are going to support your work, you support their work, and you just all grow together. I think that's been a really big shift in the way I approach Twitter and social media in general. You painted such a great picture here <laughs> because I think people view Twitter as if they were invited to speak at a conference and they act that way. But really, it's more like what you said. It's a party or a networking event where you don't just address the room. People are going to just ignore you unless they already know you. So you've got to go to these individuals or groups or, you know, there's the idea of like podcast Twitter and baseball Twitter and EDC Twitter and engage with those kind of micro communities inside of Twitter as a whole or LinkedIn or maybe threads. We're using Twitter as the royal we for all social networks, right? Because who knows what Twitter slash X is going to be in a few years. And it's just kind of the natural life cycle of most websites, most technology things. But I like this approach of the one-on-one -on -one thing. And before I ask you how you 
made the move to get people from Twitter to your podcast. I do want to ask you about the relevance of Twitter slash X, right? Because Elon bought it around the time that you got onto the platform, right? We'll say re-engaged with the platform. So you don't have the same baggage that a lot of Twitter users and former Twitter users have of like, I remember the good old days or whatever, which by the way, the good old days were like 2007 to like 2010 when me and like a bunch of people would just like live tweet Yankee games. Like those were the good old days. Anything after that was kind of a hellscape and Elon did things that didn't change that. Anyway, my point is you've built this following almost exclusively on Elon's Twitter. Do you think Twitter is still relevant? I feel like you're a little bit more optimistic about this than I am. Yeah, so I am optimistic and I'll tell you why. Each social platform goes through these waves of change and you can't really control this change because it's almost like psychological, like human consumer behavior that changes. And so imagine back in the day, like remember when Facebook launched their newsfeed there was an outrage. Like there was literally petitions to Mark Zuckerberg being like, bring the old Facebook back. We hate the newsfeed. Literally the newsfeed is every single social network right now has a newsfeed of some sort. That is social media. Right, that's social media now. But you're right. Like I remember anytime Facebook made a change from like, let's say 09 to like 14, there were petitions. Bring back the old one. If you repost this, Mark Zuckerberg will show you the old feed again or whatever, like those like weird scammy post things. So yeah, you're absolutely right. People are just averse to change. They're averse to change. And I do feel like towards the end of the Twitter that we know it, before Elon came over, to be totally honest with you, I felt like it was a little bit stale. What I mean by stale is like, there wasn't a lot of innovation happening. And I remember at one point, I live in San Francisco. So I drive by that. Twitter headquarters building like very frequently. I just remember like thinking, when is Twitter going to go down? Because first of all, they were losing money. It was like an antiquated old platform that people weren't really using. My prediction was that it would actually be like a MySpace where they would just become irrelevant. Or like relevant to only a very small niche, right? Like bands. Exactly. MySpace became like a thing for bands. So I thought that was happening. That was in my point of view. Again, like other people might be like, wow, it was amazing. Like I had whatever, whatever. But like in my point of view, it was declining. And so when Elon took over, I was like, all right, this is going to get interesting. Obviously, Elon, his vision is probably top 0.001% of entrepreneurs in the entire world. Like he's crazy vision. Obviously, he's a little out there. He says stuff that he shouldn't really say. (laughs) He's a crazy dude. And the thing is, you have to be a little crazy if you're going to buy out a public social media platform bring it private again, and it's now his ownership. It's crazy. Like, you have to be a little crazy to do everything that Elon's done. Imagine being like, oh, yeah, we're going to make, like, reusable rocket ships that land themselves. Like, that's insane. (laughs) And he made that happen. Like, yeah, I mean, like, Elon says a lot of things that he shouldn't say, and he definitely, like, shoots first and then aims. That's the kind of thing that he does. And that's, like, really annoying and capricious to people who have been on the platform for a long time. But I think you're right. Like it was getting, again, like thread boys to use like Kahee's term, right? Like, oh, here's how to make a million dollars. Build a product people like, get people to buy it. Those people who buy it will then sell it for you. And I'm like, that's not how it works. And you know that, Dickie Bush. That's crazy that you would even say that. But that got a ton of engagement. Yeah. I'm glad that it's changing now. And I've been following his kind of like what he's trying to build. 
it's very ambitious. And I don't know if he can pull it off, but Elon's the one who could pull it off if anyone can pull it off, right? So I know he's going to push video. He wants to make it into like a video compete with like YouTube, Spotify, Apple. I think he's going to do more audio podcast stuff. I know he's doing payments, so micro payments using cryptocurrency. So he's got a lot of stuff planned that I'm eager to see what happens, but I think that it's good for the platform as a whole. One other thing is like, I think change just generally is a good thing. If you can be on the front of that change, that's a huge opportunity because now you're riding the wave of this new change versus being stuck in the old ways of like, oh man, I used to remember when I posted this random thread about making money, it went viral. It was so easy, but now it's changing. And so if you're ahead of the change, like you could grow really fast. That's a huge point. I think the takeaways here are, first of all, build relationships, right? I was going to ask you if what you were doing is still effective, but like building relationships is always going to be effective. That's not a Twitter hack or like LinkedIn growth strategy. That's just people. Like people are people. And so building relationships is always going to be effective. I will add here, Joe, that so in the last two, three weeks, I've seen kind of a change in people that I'm attracting. And so I think this is an important point I want to bring up. So about a month ago, I started, instead of posting for my audience, so I was like, quote unquote, a creator, and my content was around building an audience and how to monetize your audience, like things like that, which to be honest, like there's so much content out there for that. And I was kind of like hiding behind, I didn't really know how to structure the content around the holding company that I have, the personal holding company with the three businesses. And so I wasn't really sharing about that. It was just more about like, here's how to build an audience, things like that. And when I shifted my content to talking more about my own life and like just generally like things that I've been doing for the last eight years, the funny thing is it may not seem like relevant for a lot of people because who's going to build a holding company with three, four, five businesses? Like, I don't know if like a lot of people would do that. But what's interesting is I started getting followers being like, I want to follow your journey. You know, I want to get to know how you're doing X, Y, and Z. And so it became more of this like follow my journey type thing and like a more of an interesting perspective because not a lot of people are doing what I'm doing in terms of like the holding company. And like essentially my view is you can pretty much build a business from any hobby. We brought him Humphrey. His food was expensive. So we built a business and now like we get paid to go to five-star hotels. We stay for free because we just have to create content around the hotel. It's crazy. I started sharing more of that content and I may not appeal to the broader audience, but then what happened was I started getting people to follow me, people that I would not imagine would follow me. Like, for example, like Pompliano, like Anthony Pompliano, like I had Greg Eisenberg follow me. I had these guys that I wouldn't expect them to follow me. They started following me because I was sharing interesting stuff and it's almost like a higher advanced level content. And they were following me because I was sharing that level content versus another like, here are five habits that you need to know to succeed. Pompliano is not going to follow me if I post content like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's super interesting, right? Because one of the conversations that we had via J. Klaus's lab was how I can leverage the podcast audits I'm doing to do well on Twitter. And the first one I did was like, Yangsu, it was gangbusters. It's the best tweet I've ever had. And it's not even close. That is my most viral tweet where the second is like way behind and it was a picture of a table with a bunch of books with swear words in them. And I'm like, this is my least favorite trend. (laughs) So like that got maybe half the engagement and views that this thread got. But then I noticed like recently, like those threads weren't doing as well, but I tweeted 
that after 86 months, this podcast finally got to 100 reviews and my takeaways. And that like popped off a little bit. This is like something I like sent at my kitchen table when I noticed it. And like that popped off a little bit. And so I think like sharing your journey, it's so funny because earlier you said like with your podcast, like people didn't really care about that. But that seems to be the thing that's resonating on Twitter now. Exactly. Your original question about is your strategy working now? I would say sharing personal stories and you got to have like a little bit of a unique angle. Like I'm trying to do this, which is like kind of a fun and like quirky thing. Like follow me if you want to like see what I'm doing. I think that's kind of like what is working. Generally, I feel like that's a good strategy to have because people are curious. They want to see people succeed. And so that's been working for me in the last month or so. So again, in keeping with the format, I'm going to say life lesson two, share your personal stories. These are the things that resonate with other people. It helps you build those relationships. I love that. But we're missing a key piece of this puzzle here, right? Like, because we have a very big open thread in Yangsu's podcast story. Launched a podcast with no following, built a huge following on Twitter. How do you get those people to listen to your podcast? Yeah, this is interesting because when I started building these relationships on Twitter, I started directing them to listen to the podcast. This was not easy because if you imagine someone scrolling through a feed on Twitter, getting a reply, being like, hey, can you check out my podcast? Like, who's going to have the time at that very moment to click into a podcast player and listen to an episode, a 30 to 40 minute episode? Nobody. No one's going to do that. What I started doing is instead of having my, I guess, audience funnel be from social media or Twitter in this case to the podcast, I put the newsletter in between there. And so it's a really easy ask like, hey, by the way, I share lessons on how I built my business and other people as well. Join 8,000 people who also signed up to my newsletter. And so I'm using the newsletter because all you're doing is you're asking for an email address. So that's very quick, takes two seconds, very low commitment. And then now you have them. And now you can continuously email them, reminding them, hey, I have a podcast episode. Hey, by the way, I have a podcast episode this week. Every single week, I send out a newsletter. And now not only is it good for like, they'll click on it and listen to the episode, but it's like a good branding play. Like they may forget the First Class Founders podcast exists, but then they'll see it each week and be like, oh yeah, I remember this guy. Like, oh yeah, I met him on Twitter. I wonder what he's up to. They might go to the Twitter profile. And it's a very good like branding play too. Yeah, I love that. The newsletter sits right in between. Yeah, so the newsletter is the bridge, basically. It's the bridge between Twitter and your podcast. And this makes perfect sense, right? Because, hey, listen to this podcast is a big ask, especially if someone's not ready at that moment, if they're not already subscribed to your podcast, or if they don't usually listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. Now they're like, how do I listen to this? I got to keep this website up on my phone to listen (laughs) to this. There's a barrier to entry there, right? It's like saying, hey, you've never swam before. Go swimming in the ocean. Whereas like with the newsletter, like you said, it's a much lower ask. It's like, hey, just stick your feet in the river. That's nicer. You're already at the river. Just take your shoes off. Put your feet in it. I really like that. There's like a psychological um, principle behind this too, right? Political campaigns would do this, right? Where they would go door to door before like micro donations were like a thing online. They would go door to door asking for donations to the campaign. Hey, are you willing to donate a hundred bucks to the campaign? No, I'm not really ready to do that. Right. Oh, okay. I I totally understand. Would you mind if we put this sign in your yard for our candidate? Well, yeah, it's like the big ask followed by the smaller ask. You feel bad that you didn't give them a hundred bucks, but oh yeah, you can put the sign in my yard. That's fine. 
I think that's kind of the same thing. Like, oh, you're not going to listen to my podcast, but like you can sign up for the newsletter, right? I mean, that's an easy thing to do. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to ask more of a tactical thing here. What do you use for Twitter? Are you just like posting directly on Twitter? Are you using like Hype Fury or Typefully or something? I use Typefully for 80% of it. And then for the ones that are longer form tweets or ones that I really want to pay attention to, I just do it on my own. I just do all the bold italics, all the stylistic stuff, like directly on Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Cause I noticed like Typefully support. Do that. I don't want to call it Typefully. There's no API. No Twitter tool can do that. Only Twitter can do that. So then when you do like the follow-up tweets, is that only going to be on the ones that you post from Typefully? I'm asking because I use Typefully, but I find myself writing just on Twitter more lately because you can do longer formatted stuff. And so I don't get the follow-up tweets now because unlike Hype Fury, Typefully doesn't watch all of your tweets. It just watches the ones that it, it sent. I go in there and I respond to every single comment on the tweet. That's pretty important. This is another thing that we should mention is that the latest algo change, which I don't like chasing algo stuff, but it's significant in that if someone replies to your tweet, it boosts the algorithm significantly. And then if you respond back to that response, it boosts it even further. So it's really important to like engage. And also generally it's good because you want to engage with your audience anyways. And so I always respond as much as I can to every single response. And so I do that just kind of manually on Twitter web app. And then if you say like, hey, if you liked this, like check out my newsletter, like you're going to post that manually in the course of engaging with other people on that tweet. Oh, for that one. So I'd say 80% of the tweets go through Typefully and Typefully will plug that in automatically after it reaches a certain amount of likes or hearts or whatever. But then the ones where I do it manually, I will plug that in once I see that the post is doing well. Like you can tell because you can go back and check the impressions and that impression number is like, going up really fast. Then it's like, all right, it's in the algorithm. It's going to do well. And then what I'll do is I'll do a plug, but it'll be a customized plug. So it doesn't seem like the regular one that I'm doing for Typefully. Oh, cool. Yeah. Makes sense. It'll be more catered towards like that piece of content that I wrote. So for example, I did one with Humphrey, right? And so the call out was like, if you want to know how I built Humphrey's business, join the newsletter, something like that. So let me ask you then, like how much time do you think you spend on Twitter every day? Too much, probably. At least two, three hours. <laughs> but like that works for you, right? You're not like doom scrolling the whole time. You're like building relationships that then you can send people to your podcast or your newsletter. I'm subscribed to your newsletter. I don't recall you promoting your other businesses in that newsletter. That changed today. So I sent out a newsletter today. Oh, okay. And I plugged in GrowthJet, which is the 3PO company. And so that was the first time ever that I plugged my own company. But I think I'm going to experiment with this more. I'm actually going to add my company as a sponsor in a few episodes just to see what happens. But I think that that's going to happen more and more. And that makes sense. I think, right? GrowthJet is kind of the closest to like doing business and growing business sort of thing, right? Exactly. The missions are most closely aligned there. So I do have a note here that I want to touch on, right? Because Twitter wasn't your only exploration for growth avenues, right? You did something with Player FM. Yeah. Let's talk about that. About a month and a half in, I was, I guess, honestly, it was probably because of my frustration with the lack of downloads, but it was in one of those podcast newsletters. Somebody was like, Player FM is right now really a good opportunity to do some sponsorship deals. And so I reached out to them and I purchased their gold package for, it was like two week period. I saw a huge spike up in downloads for those two weeks. And then it just kind of like, 
dipped back down and then it leveled, I guess, kind of like the new baseline for the level of number of downloads kind of like steadied, right? So I think I was around 400 downloads an episode. So it spiked where I was getting like a thousand for those two weeks and then it went down to 400. So I lost what, like 60% of that. But to be honest, I think it was worth it because in the beginning, especially you kind of want to have some audience where you can kind of get some feedback. 10, 20 downloads is not much. And honestly, they're probably like my friends and family. And so like, they're not actually going to be your target audience anyways. Yeah. What do you think of the show? Oh, it's good. It's cool that you do that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to have some baseline so I can at least get something going. And so I think it was worth it to just do that in the very beginning. But then I haven't done any of those packages since. And the show has been just growing steadily and steadily, just organically through this method. I know you did something similar with Overcast ads that you were exploring. Yeah. So I did about a month. It was like a banner ad in the technology category, I think. Like Marco Arment, who developed Overcast, is like pretty hands-on with those banner ads. So like he like algorithmically determines the pricing based on demand, but then he goes in and personally approves so that I can't say like, oh, I want the EDU category because it's the cheapest one, even though there's no alignment in the EDU category or whatever, right? I did that for about a month. I think I got about a hundred new subscribers, right? Because Marco can track that because that's a podcast listening app. And I saw a spike in downloads over that time too which was sustained for at least a few months. A lot of stuff was changing then. So I think, I don't know that I can attribute the loss in downloads to just people getting bored with the show, but I think that was worth it. I did try using Overcast for my other podcast, which was at the time called Make Money Podcasting. And that didn't work out. Like there was just not alignment there. I think there would be better alignment now. I might experiment with that more in the future. That's great. So let's wrap up here with Where are things now? How are things going with your podcast and your newsletter? And kind of how are things going on social media now that we've looked at this almost year-long journey, right? Yeah, about a year. The podcast is growing. And I think the key thing is that you're retaining listeners. The numbers are pretty much like, if you look at it from a grand scale of like monthly, but then also weekly, like the downloads are increasing. Obviously, there's fluctuations based on episodes, like one episode is going to do better than another. Like that's to be expected. But just generally you zoom out and you see a pattern. It is trending up, which is good to see. And the newsletter is also growing really, really fast. So I'm around 8,500 subscribers. So approaching 10K. So I should hit 10K in about a month. And honestly, I feel like the growth of the newsletter has also helped the growth of the podcast. I mean, it has to. And so I do think that it was a big part of that growth trajectory And now what's cool is like people on Twitter, like I can have conversations about the podcast on Twitter because people are listening. And like before all this, I'm like publishing it and I don't know who's listening and all that because podcasts obviously like super difficult to get listener feedback and all that. But now I can have conversations with people on Twitter being like, hey, like what'd you think of this episode? And they'll give me feedback. And it's kind of cool to see. I know exactly like who's listening now, which is really cool. And so that's kind of changed the way I approach it now where I'm trying to think about Like I know who is listening. And so I'm thinking about them when I'm like recording these episodes now. And so it's getting a lot more tight, I would say. The premise of the show is getting tighter because I know more about my audience. And so that's another important thing to do for people who are, I guess, podcasters is generally like you want to continuously hone in on your target avatar. And 
evolve with your audience and evolve the show to serve that audience, but also serve yourself too. Like you should be the one curious to talk to certain guests. And it's got to be this feedback loop where you're constantly improving it based on feedback, based on your download numbers or whatever it is. But if you don't have that system in place, then you're just going to get stale over time and then you're going to lose listeners. Yeah. So life lesson number three, continuously hone your target avatar and make sure to grow your show to serve your audience and yourself. Perfect. Love that. All right. We got three life lessons in. So this is like a meta episode of First Class Founders. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, this is, I think, a really good and repeatable model for a lot of people because we've mentioned Twitter a lot. Like our audience happens to be on Twitter. But you can do this on Instagram or threads, right? Like you can build relationships and then say like, hey, check out my newsletter. You can do this on threads, maybe. Maybe when this comes out, threads will be like big again. But like threads is growing. It saw that spike as we record this. It's got like the web interface. So it's getting better and more LinkedIn. Like you can do this in any of those places because again, the premise is build relationships, provide value, make it easy. Those three tenants are perfectly commutable to whatever tools and tactics and platforms you hang out on. That's well said. I love this. I do want to end with the fact that your podcast is now, according to Listen Notes, in the top 2% of all podcasts. And you rank pretty high for the term solopreneur if you search an Apple podcast, right? Yeah. Solopreneurs. And then also I rank pretty highly on Founder, which surprised me. Nice. That's a big one. Yeah. I'm going to do a callback to Deidre Shen's episode where we kind of talk about podcast discoverability in that we really dive deep into like why you should pick the name and description that you pick. So I'll link to that episode. Deidre Shen. I listened to that episode, Joe, and it was amazing. So yeah, everyone go listen to that episode. Gosh, thank you. She's like a wealth of information. I really loved talking to her. That was 328, by the way. So if you're just like typing in URLs or looking for episodes, that is 328. Yangsu, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If people want to learn more about you, where can they find you? I am on Twitter at Yongsu Chung. That's Y-O-N-G-S-O-O-C-H-U-N-G. And you can find my podcast at firstclassfounders.com or you can just search either founder or founders. I should rank highly thanks to Joe's episode with the HHN. Awesome. And I will make sure to link to all of that and everything we talked about in the show notes, which you can find over at howibuilt.it slash 333. Howibuilt.it slash 333 for episode 333. Now, I was so engrossed in this conversation, I'm going to have to insert this as like a mid-roll thing now, that I didn't even talk about the pro show. So if you want ad-free extended versions of every episode, including this one, you can go to howibuilt.it slash 333. There's going to be a join button there. But Yangsu and I are going to exchange notes on our production processes. And I'm doing a deep dive on his podcast for my newsletter over at Podcast Workflows. And so I might ask him some follow-up questions there. I also found the name of that knife that I referenced earlier. So if you want to know the brand, you got to sign up. Howiebuilt.it slash 333. Yangsu, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Joe, thanks so much for having me on. It was a blast. And thank you for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. And until next time, get out there, 
and build something.